0: Well, we didn't spend the whole year talking about a virus, so that was something. Any hopes anybody might have entertained that 2022 might be a relatively quiet, stress-free sort of year were dashed on February 24th, when Russia, after months of a military build-up so obvious it was widely read as a bluff, invaded Ukraine or we should say, in the interests of accuracy, invaded even more of Ukraine than it had in 2014. Russia's assault on Ukraine, the biggest state-on-state conflict in Europe since World War II, was inevitably the year's biggest story. Aside from the war itself, it prompted a swift reassessment of the diplomatic calculations the West had made about Vladimir Putin, a redrawing of Europe's defensive boundaries as Sweden and Finland applied to join NATO, and an equally urgent reordering of global energy markets as Europe in particular sought other suppliers of oil and gas. In the country from which the Foreign Desk broadcasts, it was a year of extraordinary political and metaphysical turmoil. The UK saw one Prime Minister brought down by his own moral incapacity, another by her own economic ineptitude, and 10 Downing Street now finds itself with its fifth tenant in six years. Adding emphasis to this chaos was the departure of the personification of the UK's stability and stolidity, as its longest-serving monarch was farewelled by its shortest-serving Prime Minister. What should we make of 2022? What should we hope, fear and expect of 2023? And who were our panel's heroes and villains of the year gone by? This is The Foreign Desk. Ukrainians woke up to find
1: themselves plunged into the midst of war. Explosions and air raid sirens ringing out here in Kiev and cities across this country as Russia launched a full-scale invasion on multiple fronts in the early hours of this morning.
0: Putin is the aggressor. Putin chose this war, and now he and his country will bear the consequences. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new Prime Minister.
1: A few moments ago, Buckingham Palace announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Today I feel uh, gay. Today, I feel disabled.
0: Today, I feel uh, a migrant worker. Across China, citizens and police clashing in the streets. Law enforcement racing to contain remarkable shows of opposition to China's President Xi Jinping. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Well, first of all, to reflect specifically on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I'm joined now by Aliona Livko, former Ukrainian local MP and now a senior consultant at Atticus Partners, and by Lada Roslitsky, founder of Black Trident, a defence and security consulting group in Kiev. And Lada, we will start with you. We are speaking to you on a scratchy phone line due to internet outages and power cuts where you are. How are things at the moment?
2: Well, things are pretty dreary and gloomy. People are despondent. And as the genocide continues, again, the Ukrainians can fight for their freedom.
0: What sort of steps are people having to take to manage to keep some sort of normal life going?
2: Water is the most important aspect at this point, because if the electricity shuts down, you don't have access to water. So people are trying to keep stable with the water and making sure we have candles, enough blankets to prevent the freezing temperatures with your generators on the streets everywhere, private ones, mind you. They're not government providing. So there's a little bit of frustration definitely growing, particularly in Kiev, with the apparent lack of proper communication that we're receiving from the officials. Everybody's trying to keep their spirits up. And whenever somebody complains, it's always, we can't complain because we have to imagine our men and women on the front lines, in the mud, in the ice, with no cover. And recently, again, violently using phosphorus weapons against the Ukrainians.
0: Alona, let's bring you in, and it is extraordinary to think back a year even, and think that a year later, that is a conversation you are having with somebody living in a big European capital city in 2022. I want to start by going back to the very beginning of this year, though. And I can remember coming up to February 24th, we were talking about this with experts and policymakers and people in Ukraine all day, every day here at Monocle. And up until the moment it happened, there was hugely divided opinion about whether Russia was bluffing or not. So I want to ask you, what was your point of understanding that this is actually going to happen? Was it when it happened or had you got there before?
3: you know andrew indeed it's been quite a year and i'm sitting here remembering the very first time i've joined monocle on the topic of ukraine in october last year Mm. and that's exactly the question that i was being asked do you think that the escalation on the border of ukraine the buildup of troops is that going to result into war or not and just like most ukrainians back then We just couldn't believe that it would actually amount to that. Sure, we've been invaded since 2014, Mm -hmm. and we had military actions in the east. And at most, I guess I could have presumed that there will be an escalation in the east of the country. I didn't think that Putin and his leadership would be stupid enough to go after Kiev and to go after the rest of Ukraine, just ruining his whole country. Effectively, that's what it's going to come to. Ukraine will survive. It's going to cost us very much. And we're paying high price on a daily basis now. But Russia effectively might cease to exist as we know it now. And it undermines the whole global order. So no, to go back to your question, I was quite doubtful. But I think two weeks before The war started, I could hear more and more information from Mm. some friends in, in Ukrainian authorities, Ministry of Defense, intelligence community that most likely, especially intelligence community here in the UK, that you're underestimating the threat, but most likely it is going to happen.
0: Lada, Russia's invasion on its own merits has obviously been a shambles strategically, logistically, and pretty much every other way you want to judge it. But do you think that they also underestimated how well prepared Ukraine had become for this eventuality since the invasion of 2014? It does rather look like Ukraine had done quite a good job of preparing for this and doing that quite quietly.
2: No, I think that we should not underestimate Russia at all. It is a complete misnomer to call what it has done and what it is doing in Ukraine a failure. As for bulletproof vests or slack jackets, I just gave my own helmet and jacket away last week to source it to the front lines. Ukrainian territory is under uh, Russian occupation. It's extremely important to understand that the men and the women of Ukraine have been separated. And that is the first step in ethnic cleansing and in genocide. And over 6 million have been lucky enough to make it into Western countries and democracies. But these are families who have been broken. And approximately 50% of those individuals will not return. And we're not talking about how many hundreds of thousands of children have been abducted by the Russian Federation and are now being adopted by the Russians. So it's a high war. It's going to take a very long time, and I really think that we should not be celebrating. We should be uniting together and recognizing the incredible threat that Black matter imperialism, and I call it black matter imperialism, is because it's like a black colonial power that just destroys everything in its way. And seeing what the effects the Russians are to get out of Germany, for instance, and within the United States, that Cold War is very much continuing, and the propaganda, the active measures, they're not coming to an end. If anything, they're escalating. So, yeah. I know that many people feel that Russia didn't take over Kiev and Ukraine as they planned within three days. And yes, it is very highly likely that even the United States believed that the Russians were much more powerful and would be more effective on a military level than they are. But we're still in a war. There's a full fledged war going on with rockets flying around, people being killed, chemical weapons being used, illegal chemical weapons. We have the largest nuclear plant in Europe, which is hijacked by the Russians. There is no reason to talk about Russian failure or underestimating the enemy, particularly now that you're teaming up with lovely partners like Iran.
0: Just finally, for this part of our Year in Review Foreign Desk, we are asking all the panellists if they can each nominate one hero and one villain for 2022. And Alona, obviously, when you ask a Ukrainian, there's probably a couple of fairly obvious answers to both of those, which everybody will be expecting you to furnish. But you are welcome to go ahead and surprise us.
3: I don't think I will surprise you, Andrew. I think I will definitely go with an estimate that a collective Ukrainian is a hero of this year for Mm -hmm. me personally. And that collective Ukrainian is embodied in our wonderful President Zelensky, who took on this challenge that I'm sure he wasn't prepared for, but he's carrying that with dignity and strength. And I think we got really lucky with him. For me, that hero would be my brother, who's fighting for his nation, his family, for me here in London, for my mom and my sister in Germany, for his family back home in Ukraine, and our granny who said that she's never going to leave the country because she's going to die where she was born, regardless of who comes over to invade. And all the women and children who stayed behind, who left the country, who are separated, as Lada just said, supporting their men on the front line, supporting their country. And for everyone who I am certain will be challenged by the events that happened last year, by the events that will happen next year too, but who will still maintain confident, who will keep Ukraine in their hearts, and who will come back to rebuild the country, and that includes all of us.
0: And do I need to ask you to name a villain, or can we just go <sighs> ahead and fill that one in ourselves?
3: I think that's kind of obvious, but it's it's also important to understand that it's not just one person. It's Indeed. For, it's for some reason, sadly, it's the spirit of that nation that turned so evil over time and corroborated into this offensive, not just against Ukraine, but against the whole world.
0: And Lada, would you disagree with any of that? <laughs>
2: I would like to put forth that the true terrible villain and a collective villain if you will, is fear that has been implanted in the hearts and minds of Western leaders. The lack of understanding, the great damage and harm that is being created is a very, very dangerous thing. And as far as hero, my first thought is, I have to agree, is that collective Ukrainian, my dog, <laughs> and uh, Deluzhny, who is really doing a fantastic job, in such dire situation with the armed forces of the Ukraine.
0: Alyona Hlivko and Lada Roslitsky, thank you for joining us. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. <laughs> You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. For a roundup of other major global events of 2022, I'm joined now by John Everard, former British diplomat, previously ambassador to Uruguay, Belarus and North Korea, and by Alex von Tunzelman, the historian, author and screenwriter. Well, let's talk a bit about the country from which we are broadcasting, the United Kingdom. It's been a fairly ridiculous last five or six years in British politics anyway, since the uncorking of the, I'm not really sure where that metaphor was going, is Brexit the genie or the bottle? Brexit's the genie. Anyway, you know what I'm saying. But since that was uncorked in 2016, things have been a little bit wild. John, this year, the United Kingdom, I think I've counted this right, had three prime ministers. I couldn't even begin to start guessing re-chancellors of the Exchequer. Two and a half. (laughs) (laughs) Well, indeed. Do you think the rest of the world does regard Britain a bit differently than it might have done this time a year, let alone six years ago?
1: Yes, I think that the UK has scored a number of own goals. I mean, the political mess in the late summer, autumn in this country was horrible. I mean, clearly the political system was struggling and producing results that nobody thought were possible in a mature democracy. On the other hand, I've seen German commentators say that, yes, this was messy, but which is worse, a UK style mess in which you can actually evict a completely useless prime minister and an even more useless chancellor of the Exchequer in 50 days or a German style suet pudding where you can't (laughs) actually evict anybody
0: for anything? Alex, and it must have been extraordinary for you to watch, as a historian who takes a particular interest in the the human dimension of great events, that right in the middle of this upheaval, this extraordinary roiling chaos, this apparently immovable pillar of stability exits the scene in the shape of Queen Elizabeth II. After an extraordinarily long reign, and of course historians of the future will look at footage of the funeral, they will see... This woman introduced as the United Kingdom's Prime Minister giving the oration, and they will say to each other, Who on earth is that? You wouldn't dare script this, would you?
4: I mean, it's so extraordinary. And, you know, the Crown can't keep up, can it? With the love <laughs> like, fictionalising, this is impossible. I mean, a fascinating moment and I think there probably was people talked about I mean there were all sorts of comments on this as Liz Truss of course used to be very anti-monarchy when she was a student she was um, a Republican She
0: was anti-Brexit at one point She as was well. all sorts of things mm. so
4: there were all sorts of comments of you know Liz, Liz Truss has taken <laughs> out the Queen already in her first move Actually I think there probably is a bit of a psychological element to what happened because we all knew that the Queen's health hadn't been good for a long time mm-hmm. and it really did feel like with the timing that she was hanging on for Boris Johnson to leave office. <laughs> and I don't necessarily mean that's necessarily a political comment, but I think she probably had a sense of duty about invigilating the next prime minister, and bringing them in and sort of installing them in office.
0: Do you think for her at some level it might have been an irony too far that her first prime minister was Winston Churchill and her last would have been a Winston Churchill tribute act?
4: I mean, really, you know, the phrase from the sublime to the ridiculous. So, I mean, where do you even start? But yes, I mean, I think that perhaps she did sort of... I mean, people do actually sort of hang on for Mm. what they think are their duties to fulfil, even if it wasn't that she just couldn't bear the thought of Boris Johnson doing that speech at her funeral, (laughs) which you could see he was really quite cross that he wasn't giving. He seemed very bad-tempered on the day. But, I mean, it is an extraordinary thing, and I think there is a moment to reflect here that most people in Britain, and indeed in the wide world, have never known a British monarch other than Queen Elizabeth II. So this is, you know, quite a big change, even though, of course... There's a huge amount of stress on the continuity and a huge amount of work done to make sure that we all feel continuity. And, of course, we do in many ways with the Queen is dead, long live the King. It's in the phrase, it immediately passes on, there is no pause. But, you know, it is a very, very significant moment.
0: How strange was that moment for you, John? You had for many years literally represented abroad Her Majesty's government. Yes,
1: that's right. And as ambassador, I, I met the Queen on three occasions. It felt really very, very strange. I mean, she's the only Queen I've ever known. As you say, I, I have that in common with a great majority of the population of, of this country and indeed the Commonwealth. And I'm still blinking slightly that we have a King. This beacon of continuity suddenly goes. Although, as uh, somebody pointed out to me, if you were about 20 years older than I am, you hadn't been through one reign, all of a sudden you have been through three. <laughs> you have to remember the continuity and stability hasn't always been the norm in the monarchy any more than it is these days in the prime ministership.
0: Let's look at the wider world somewhat, because the year was in some respects topped and tailed by two great international sporting events held in places where a lot of people thought great international sporting events should arguably not be held. This is, of course, the Winter Olympics in Beijing and the World Cup in Qatar. Now, Alex, I'd be interested to know what you think of this, because this is obviously countries wanting these events in order to project an image of themselves abroad, but Are we starting to get the sense that repressive regimes in particular might be starting to think this is just buying us trouble? Because on the one hand, when you host a Winter Olympics or a World Cup, fine, the whole world pays attention to you. But on the other side of that, the whole world pays attention to you.
4: I think there's sometimes a bit of a mismatch that you can sort of see happening between these regimes and how they think it's going to work, you know, because they obviously have really quite tight control over domestic media at home and how they're portrayed and so on. And so I suppose they sort of think that's how the world operates. And then, of course, the rest of the world has all this chaos going on. And now even more than it ever was with social media and people tweeting whatever they want or Facebooking it or whatever else they're doing. And actually, they, you really can't control that very effectively. And I think that's Quite often you can see some real confusion, particularly in the Chinese government, I think, about how the Western media, let alone social media, will respond to things like this. And I think it's been particularly notable, actually, with Qatar recently that, you know, I mean, this is so expensive. They have spent so much money. I'm not convinced it's doing them whatever favours they thought it would.
0: The thing that strikes me, John, the difference there is, and this applies to Russia's 2018 World Cup as well as to China's Beijing Olympics, that though both Russia and China invited an amount of criticism of their current regimes by hosting those, people know and admire lots of other things about Russia and China. It's history, it's culture, it's art, it's manufacturing, it's science, etc. Give or take a very good airline and, indeed, a very good news service, no one really knows anything about Qatar. And all of a sudden, what you learn about Qatar is not terribly complimentary
1: they don't need to. Qatar has the gas. They didn't need to spend all this money in retrospect. All they needed to do was to say, yes, we'll send you, yet more gas, smile sweetly, and everybody would have loved them. What a waste of $60 billion.
0: John, on the subject of China, though, it was, well, every year in China is a significant year, not just for China, but for everybody else. Such now is China's economic, diplomatic, and military heft. It had its 20th Congress, the Chinese Communist Party this year. Xi Jinping is now basically president for life if he wants it and can hang on to it. Do you get any sense, especially in the protests that started to emerge in the last few weeks of 2022, that hanging on to it might not be as easy as he anticipated? He is showing no sign of thinking that these are a threat to his
1: regime. It's not just that he's president for life, remember, but he has also ripped up large parts of the Chinese party constitution. China never was a cuddly a liberal democracy. Let's not get too excited. But under his predecessor, there was a lot of room for internal debate. And people could and did tell the president that they weren't happy with policy, things were going wrong, things he did fixing. He has now surrounded himself by semi-competent yes-men. And nobody will be telling him anything he doesn't want to hear. So that although we know that these protests are being driven by widespread and deep discontent over the Covid lockdowns, over 20% youth unemployment, over the migrant camps on big cities, over any number of things, his advisers, quote unquote, will be telling him this is all foreigners stirring up trouble in this paradise that is your China, President Xi, and he will believe them.
0: We should discuss as well one, at least, great diplomatic conclave of 2022. And this was COP27 held in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. Monocle 24 covered it extensively. We sent Carlotta Rabello all the way there to talk to people who were trying to stop the world from drowning. Alex, did you derive any great hope from COP27?
4: I mean, it was, as it very often is, a bit of a mixed bag, wasn't it? I think Mm. we're at such a difficult point where obviously we've already kind of gone past a number of milestones and people are now kind of... The focus really is now on mitigation rather than prevention to quite a large degree, I think, isn't it? And I think it's something at least to have these sorts of summits to get Mm. people together, but the enormous difficulty of any sort of collective action becomes apparent very quickly. I did think at the end they sort of managed to pull some sort of victory out of the jaws of defeat right at the end. But I don't think it's anywhere near as radical as it needs to be, if I'm honest.
0: And to you on that, John, with your former diplomat's hat on, is it too much to expect that that many disparate nations with that many disparate interests will be able to organise collectively behind a single objective?
1: We've done it before. Mm. I mean, COP26 was significantly more successful in uniting countries behind objectives, getting them to sign up to quite challenging targets than COP27. COP27 was an unmitigated disaster. We got this rather vague fund into which people will pay or won't pay or might pay or, no, who's going to be monitoring it for countries... Not much of a list there who are particularly badly affected by climate change created by the industrialised nations. And that was almost the only positive to come out. We will not now be able to reduce emissions below a level that doesn't threaten the climate. This is the end of the Maldives, the end of a lot of the Pacific Islands. Shanghai is under threat, water levels rise, and we are going to get more and more severe climate events. From here, we get into a completely Sterile blame game. Everybody will accuse everybody else of being responsible for the disasters that we now face, and in the end, who is actually morally guilty doesn't matter. We had a chance to at least avert some of this, and we fuffed it. In the last chance saloon, the world's leaders flaked.
0: Well, John, you may have partially answered the next question. We we are getting to that part of the show where we try to assess what we have actually gleaned from the last 12 months. And I, I wanted to conclude the show by asking you briskly each for a hope and for a fear for 2023. You can do those in whichever order you like, good news versus bad news. Alex, a hope and a fear for 2023. There's a lot of fears, I'm afraid, mm. <laughs> Andrew, for I, trying... I, I did I did think that column might... Yeah, I mean,
4: trying to sort of narrow it down to one, I think, particularly in the UK, there is a really serious potential impact of the cost of living crisis. I'm very seriously concerned that, particularly by sort of March and April, you know, when the help stops with the energy bills and you get, you're going to have really quite a lot biting then. Plus, of course, you know, people's mortgage fixed periods are ending, that actually you're going to have a lot of people who really are facing some very serious hardship. And I think that's very frightening in the UK because it's not. Clear, you know, that there will be help or assistance with that. So I think it's a very frightening situation for a lot of people. And I, I mean, much though the trust government did indeed collapse quite quickly, So we commented on, and you know, there has been some sort of change of direction. I think it's a huge ship to turn now. I think it's very, very difficult to turn it around. And a hope? Well, I suppose my hope on that basis, which sounds rather negative but actually sort of isn't, is that the UK government actually just does not make it to 2024. I rather hope that there's an election.
1: (laughs) And John, a fear and a hope from you. Okay, let's start with the fears that one or other of the powder kegs blows. North Korea decides it cannot survive indefinitely. It's going to be wiped out if there's a long peace and starts a war using nuclear developed tactical nuclear weapons, which it have been practicing for some time. China invades Taiwan. There are many other powder kegs of the same kind. If any one of them goes, I think the world is plunged into even deeper chaos than it is. But I think unfashionably, I'm actually quite optimistic for 2023. I think that the risk, as the IMF likes to say, is on the upside. We are watching Russian authoritarianism bleed to death in Ukraine. Whatever comes out of this, Russia will be profoundly changed and will go through a great deal of introspection and soul-searching. We are watching the limits of Chinese authoritarianism. I don't think anybody, even a few weeks ago, would have predicted that the Chinese extreme sophisticated, extremely well-resourced security apparatus was going to be overwhelmed in the way it has been by all these videos going up that we would be having mass protests in Guangzhou against not just the Covid lockdowns, but against the communist system. We are watching the restoration of some form of sanity in Latin America. I think Bolsonaro is quite definitely on his way out and I think that other Latin Americans will watch him. We might, is this too much to be hoped for? We might actually be treated to a return to sanity in the United States, though of course in that country it's very difficult to predict.
0: And just finally, finally then, we were going to ask you each to name a hero and a villain of 2022. Now there are two very obvious candidates for those titles where this year is concerned, but I think it's only fair that we spot our Ukrainian guests, Messrs. Zelensky and Putin, respectively. So, Alex, would you like to nominate a hero and a villain of 2022?
4: I would. I'll start with my villain, who is going to be the world's richest man, or at least possibly for now, maybe not by the time the show is broadcast, Elon Musk, who (laughs) spent this year trying not to buy Twitter and then buying Twitter, and is sort of now in the process, as far as can be seen, of dismantling it and, you know, restoring a lot of right-wing accounts, but also bringing in a lot of censorship of some of these accounts, which in fact contribute to some of the things John said he was hopeful about. So for instance, you know, I think there's a great deal of concern about what's going to happen to accounts in China, who have been actually very active in sort of of trying to communicate and so forth and that actually there's a real sense that actually the speech of those accounts could be severely curtailed. On one level, it's been an extraordinary comedy watch to see somebody spend £44 on a company and then just sort of immediately reduce the worth by such a huge amount.
0: I mean, if if I had that much money lying around, I would have my midlife crisis in a much more secluded circumstance, I think. Absolutely.
4: You know, and I mean, if you think what the Washington Post was so much cheaper when Jeff Bezos bought it, (laughs) I mean, really a much better investment. But also, aside from the huge geopolitical concerns, I think it really affects people on a personal level. There's an awful lot of people who have have on Twitter built their businesses, you Mm -hmm. know, small creators. There are people who, I know a surprising number of people who've met their partners on Twitter, who have all sorts of small things. And actually to destroy a network like that is quite something, I think. So for that, I'm afraid he is my villain. But who knows, he may yet turn it around. And your hero? My hero is a very different sort of man is actually a man called Christian Smalls, who worked in an Amazon warehouse during the pandemic. And he led a walkout at that warehouse and was promptly fired, allegedly for safety violations, but really quite clearly for organising. Anyway, he achieved the most extraordinary victory when this year he managed to get that warehouse to vote for the first Amazon Labour Union, which is now brought into existence. An incredible achievement for which I think he's been on Time's list of the most influential Mm -hmm. people of 2022. He was, was invited to the White House by Joe Biden, who said he liked his kind of trouble. And I think for somebody who genuinely is a warehouse worker on the floor, this is the most extraordinary achievement against a big company. So that does give me some hope.
0: Well done him. John, a hero and a villain from you.
1: Okay, villain. You won't be surprised. Xi Jinping, the man who has trashed the green shoots of some kind of freedom in China, brought the place back into a a virtual monarchy and repressed hundreds of millions of his own people. Really not my favorite person. Hero Lula in Brazil. The man who actually snatched the madness from Bolsonaro's trembling hands forced him to accept electoral defeat and looks set to return Brazil to a path of, of sanity and responsible government, Lomar Hillev
0: John Everard and Alex von Tunzelman, thank you very much for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. <laughs> That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week, and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com, and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.